Welcome to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. I'm your host, Nicole, and this podcast is your guide to start creating a lifestyle by design. From entrepreneurship, money and finance, taxes and residencies, and everything in between, this show highlights the nuances of a true global citizen lifestyle. Let's dive in. Lane, welcome to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. I'm so excited to have you on today and talk all things real estate and investing. So before we dive in, tell me a little bit more about your story, your background, where you started, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so I kind of call this the linear path, you know, where I was kind of taught to go to school, study hard, be really frugal with money, and, you know, work a professional job for 40 years with the whole 401k stuff, buy a house to live in. You know, I, I graduated college being an engineer, kind of started working and I did just that, you know, on pace to save 50,000 plus per year after, you know, six figure job. When I first started to work, it was pretty bad. I mean, it was kind of strange because it was like traveling too, right? I was, I was traveling around for work all the time, but as most, most young professionals will say, you know, it kind of gets old pretty quick. And I just was like, I can't do this for 10, 20, you know, let alone 30 years. So I started to save my money and, you know, bought a house to live in. And I think that's what we're all taught, right? And maybe we can kind of go into reasons why buying a house to live in is maybe not the best idea. But that's what I did because I blindly just followed what my parents and Ripley told me to do. And then because I was traveling all over for work and I was on home on Saturdays and I was like, it was kind of silly to this big house to myself. Uh, mind you, this is back in 2009, right? Like I graduated college in 2007. And this is well before like Toro or renting out your stuff became really big thing. But I just started to rent this this property out. And I was like, wow, this is cool, right? Like it, it was kind of like your, your money. A few months went by and I was like, wow, if I just kept doing this a few more times, bought a few more properties, paid them off then I'd be able to replace my W-2 income. And I think that was where it all started. And that was where I started to ferociously read books and podcasts and started to get into this world of financial independence. But very different from like the fat fire kind of crowd out there. This is more, you know, use good debt, buy a lot of properties, that cash flow, and, you know, from there and from 2000, first property bought a duplex in 2012 bought 11 properties in 2015 sold all those off because i realized single family home rental properties i mean it's good to get started but i was becoming more investor at that point network dollars are greater and you know started to get more into syndications and private placements at that point yeah that was kind of the the transition i suppose you know i you too. So there's a lot to unpack in there. And thank you for sharing that, condensing your last decade, two decades of your life even to a short paragraph. So we have a lot to dive into there. But before we do, I want to talk about now, if somebody is looking to get started in real estate, similar to how you did, you mentioned that you had a fairly high income job, W-2 job that you worked for, and then you used that money to leverage and invest. Now, is that the way that you would recommend somebody going about this? Or are there alternative methods where you don't have to work for somebody else and don't have to have 
a six figure plus job to start on an investing journey. Yeah, I mean, I think it all comes down to like, it doesn't matter how much you make, although that really helps, of course, right? That top line. What really matters is that net, your net savings, your income minus expenses. So you're hanging out, you know, you're single, you're able to keep your expenses really low, you're traveling all over, enjoying your lifestyle. If you're still able to, you know, save money to tune up at least five to ten thousand dollars a year, you know, you can kind of get going with this type of lifestyle. But if you're only saving a thousand bucks, you know, a month or barely getting by, this isn't for you. And, and, and this is kind of why I, I wrote the book, The Wealth Elevator, that's coming up very soon. It's, you know, everybody talks about like, you know, wealth tips, right? But what I re- started to realize as I was starting to make the journey myself was there's these paradigm shifts that you start to break through different income levels, different you know, net worth levels. And I think everybody kind of starts out with uh, the basement. I mean, that's where I was, right? Like, although I quickly got out of that pretty quickly because I had a decent paying job. But, you know, if you're in the basement, you need to learn about budgeting, you know, all the basics, right? Get your net savings to five, ten thousand dollars $10,000 a year at the very least. Because at that point, now you're able to save, let's just say, you know, buy a $100,000 house, which, you know, I kind of recommend to a lot of new people getting started. That's what I started, you know, buying properties in Birmingham, Atlanta, Indianapolis, you know, hundred, a little over a hundred grand a month and, you know, down payment being $30,000, you know, a quarter of that, you know, you're going to need to save that up. And, you know, if you're saving 10 year, then it's going to take you a few years to save up to buy one. Now, if you're making six figures and you're able to save 30, 40, 50 grand, like a lot of my clients today, then it's obviously be a lot easier. You'll blast through the whole stage of rental property ownership and go straight to syndications and placements. But, you know, kind of a lot to pack there, right? It kind of depends on where people are at. And it's not like a one size fits all strategy. It's more of like a personal finance. Go figure. And that's why I wanted to ask you because there are for everyone's journey looks different. There's many different ways to do it. But I do appreciate you being very transparent in the fact of, you know, if you're kind of at that base level of just budgeting, then maybe this isn't for you right now, but it could be in the future and you need to know the steps to take in order for it to be for you in the future. So you mentioned in there some paradigm shifts as you are moving up the ladder in your business with your real estate properties and your net worth. So what were some of those, you know, mindset is a big part of why you have been so successful. So, and I'm, again, I know there's probably a lot to dive into here, but what are some of those major paradigm shifts, mindset shifts, that you found that you needed to tackle to get to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, I think the first, obviously, like I said, wow, people do this pretty easily. They rent out their house to regular people and you use a third-party property management to care, take care of all the little nonsense and the tenant screening and collecting up payment. It is pretty passive, right, if you buy the right property. And then the next thing is buying the right property. So, you know, I think a lot of people, they start off looking for properties around where they live or be with the college. Typically, those areas aren't going to cash flow and the numbers aren't going to work. So, you know, we'll typically teach people to look for things that are around this 1% to value threshold. So you just take the monthly rents divided by the purchase price and you need something to be greater than 1%. You know, so this kind of takes out a lot of the properties and, the cool areas will be called premium markets, like Seattle, Alston, 
California, New York, Boston, you know, all the cool places and puts you to the less sexier places, the secondary and tertiary markets. And that's why I was kind of mentioning, you know, I bought my few first properties in Seattle, Washington, but that was a long time ago when the prices were better, but still the rent to value ratios weren't there where you need, where you're able to cash flow. So that's why I started to buy the next 11 properties in Burbank, plus the sexiest places, but, you know, buy properties for a hundred grand that did for a thousand bucks. So I think that's the big, the big shift, right? Like kind of getting away from what's comfortable and getting to what's more makes sense from a numbers perspective. And I think a lot of this is numbers driven in, I get it. If you have done it before, it can be very intimidating, but I mean, people can go to my website, download the free analyzer and kind of start to play with the numbers, get, get more comfortable with it. But, you know, like once you kind of set that up, you get a third party property manager, really you're all owner to how much money you can save to kind of keep feeding beasts at this point. And I think, you know, that reminds me of, I'm trying to think there was a quote that that really reminded me of that I heard so long ago. And it went something along the lines of, you don't have to build a business that you absolutely love, but you have to build a business that is going to bring you in money so that you have the money to do the things that you love. And it sounds like you potentially got the best of both worlds and you love what you do and you have the money to do something else that you love as well. But I don't think it always has to start that way. I'm not sure what it yeah. looks like for you. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't really care for real estate. It is what it is. Glamorous. But it allows, like, it creates cash flow. You know, today what we do is we develop and value add. So it, it can, we can create equity bumps there. But like from a tax standpoint, this is why a lot of people do real estate. Because of taxes, you can save you get a lot of these passive losses the depreciation of the asset. Not like the asset is really depreciating. Paper, that's a big part of the tax code. And it's one of those things that the wealthy understand how taxes work and they use it to their advantage. So I want to dive into that. But one more thing on the mindset with you saying that before we go into kind of the, the cold, hard real estate aspect of things, you just mentioned about the mindset shift or, or the wealthy. You know, this is what the wealthy do. So you, it, it sounds like you came from a very standard middle-class family, correct me if I'm wrong, but what did it look like for you to change that mindset into, oh my gosh, I can do this, as you previously said, and I am part of the wealthy. I do deserve this. You know, all of the limiting beliefs that can come along with it. What were some of the struggles that you faced? Did that hold you back at any aspect of your journey or did you just completely power through and, you know, built up what you have today. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not like regs to riches, right? Like I didn't live on the streets. I went to college. Like I had some student loans for sure. You know, I, I, I definitely see myself as very lucky as sort of, I guess you would say the middle class, but what is the middle class these days, right? Like nobody can put her finger on. But yeah, you know, as I started to do this, I was just kind of doing it all by myself and vacuum. And you know, but I didn't know anybody else who did this type of stuff until I had like a lot of rentals back in 2015. And then I started to meet other accredited investors, you know, people who multi-billion dollar net worth, but, you know, very frugal still, right? Very value-oriented, the opposite of what you think of a millionaire is. And that's kind of where things really took off for me when I started to meet other people on this journey. Um, of course, 
you never know the size of people's net worth until you get to know them. I mean, everybody's kind of out there faking it till they're making it. But, you know, as far as a mindset, like, this is kind of where I started to get around people doing bigger deals, going into syndications and private placements because the single family homes are cool to start, but they're kind of a pain. You know, when I had 11 rental properties, I had fiction for you year or two on each property or as a whole or as a portfolio. And although you have professional property management to do all your all your dirty work for you, I mean, you know, eleven rental properties sounds glamorous, but it's only a few few hundred dollars of cash flow a month on each property, a few thousand dollars per month, which you know I'm gonna say I'm not grateful for that. But most of my clients today need maybe ten to fifteen thousand dollars of passive cash flow a month. Of three, four X, you know, maybe thirty or forty properties at three, four X exception rate, and now you can start to become a real job. And this is where the syndications and placements come in for investors to come into the LP position, where they have relieved and relieved of all management headaches, but still have all the tax benefits and the upside. This is kind of where the next transition right? they start to get around other investors and start to understand like these tax strategies. And then, you know, it's more like at this point, your worth is starting to really hit that hockey stick. You're really starting to see this where my first five, eight years of doing this is really watching grass grow and just kind of feeding the beast excess money from my job and savings. But that's, that's the nature of wealth building, I think, right? I mean, I think when you combo these strategies of investing in a 401k type of investments with tax strategies, Okay, so I want to dive into in a second what the the syndication aspect looks like. But first, I want you to explain the difference between primary, secondary and tertiary markets. And then from there, segue into you mentioned the single family homes are not the way to go. And I so I grew up with my family having various different um, rental properties and it just looked like a nightmare for me. And I'm sure it, it sounds like with your single family home, you've experienced the same. There are people leaving. They don't want to leave. You have to take them to court. And then a big reason that I was never a gung-ho fan of real estate was because there is so much money that you have to sink into that house. The furnace breaks. You have to repair the roof. There's so much cost that people just don't see because like you said at the beginning, we're, we're told and sold that we have to buy a home and live in that home and be happy in that home. And then we're going to sell it and we're going to make a bunch of money off of it because the market's going to go up. But you don't think about if the market has truly gone up and then all of the additional costs in the decades that you've lived in that home. I mean, I think a lot of what you're, you're talking about can be relieved by getting a professional third party property management. I mean, most mom and pop investors make the mistake of doing it themselves, this, you know, save the 10% a month on that. We talk about this in the book, right? The levels of the property ownership, right? Moving through that sophistication level and kind of not making as much, but getting, you know, you know, less headaches. You can't make a, you can't do that. You can't pay a professional to do that unless you have cash flow within the property. So, you know, that kind of goes back to the numbers. You don't buy the right property that cash flows to allow you to pay some person to Take, take your headaches off your head, then 
it starts with that. And again, it comes down to like that rent to value ratio and answering your first question, primary, secondary, and tertiary markets. We mainly focus on secondary and tertiary markets because primary markets just don't have the numbers to be able to cash flow. You know, so we won't invest in, you know, those sexy places like Boston, New York, Miami, all state of California. And we also stay away from the poor states too. Um, not to say anything politically, but you know, when you're the landlord, you want the landlord laws on your side. And that kind of gets into within those markets, there are like levels of properties and tenant bases. So there's A class, B class, and C class. Your A class are, you know, cool places to live, your more luxury apartments, your nicer single family home areas, better school districts. We typically don't really buy those types of assets because you're going to get those. So typically we're in that next tier, you know, still safe areas, definitely not slumlord type of areas, but there's kind of a nice sweet spot in the middle there. Once you're able to find those kind of class B rentals in better areas in secondary and tertiary markets, now you've kind of hit that sweet spot, but it kind of takes a little education to know what you're looking for. And then you have got to go look for it. But then now you have that, that buffer in your monthly income on monthly revenue, pay that professional. Uh, but you're exactly right. Once you start to get multiple digits of rental properties, you start to realize it should become a job. You know, anybody can get a few properties, but I think that's where you mentioned mind shift, mindset shift initially, right? Like. I think a lot of people or myself had this idea of paying down the properties, right? So you don't have any debt on it. That's not what the wealthy do. The wealthy continue to get more and more properties, good debt, and expand on their portfolio that way. To me, I think where I put a spin in my book is like, once you get to a net worth of four to five million, for most of our clients at least, right? Because they're trying to hit that $20,000 passive income for a month for a family of four. At that point, then you're able to, then you've kind of hit this critical mass, or I call, or zero gravity, where you've kind of gotten, gotten weightless and you're making more money per month than you're able to spend it, right? So at that point, perhaps you, maybe you should pay off your rental properties or going, you know, paying off debt. But at that point, you should have transitioned to getting away from single family homes because really the liability, right? Slip, trips, and falls, somebody suing you. By being a passive investor in larger syndication where you break up a larger deal and you go in with multiple, multiple other people as a passive investor, especially for legality reasons, liability reasons, at this point, the debt's not in your own personal name, right? So that alleviated to some extent. And then you're able to get diversification from dozens and dozens of deals. Don't worry if this sounds crazy to you. It sounds really crazy to me, right? Like I was like, well, there's something beyond owning a bunch of rental properties. Um, and this is kind of why I read into the Wealth Elevator book, right? Once you become $5 million, $10 million net worth or $100 million net worth or greater, the game changes slightly there, right? Like I said, most, most of the clients, the goal is to get the four or five mil and then chill and relax and kind of begin with the end in mind a little bit and kind of live the lifestyle that you do, right? A lot to unpack there, but I want to touch and I know that you will you go into so much more detail in your book, but can you briefly touch on what it would look like to be a passive investor in a syndicate where 
would you start with that? At what point do you start with that? And for those listening who don't know, what does that even mean? So I guess like what the heck is a syndication, right? Is like the mission impossible bad guy thing. So syndication is just a method of like pooling money together legally. Um, you know, because once you pull money together from past investors, you trigger an SEC securities law. So it's kind of serious stuff to kind of do it the right way legally. Because obviously there's been like Ponzi schemes and all this stuff in the past, right? This allows people to pull their money together to go and buy like a 200 partner or 400 partner or pull their money together to go buy a pizza franchise, right? Like you can syndicate pull money together to go buy any biz- business venture. We particularly like specialize in workforce housing. So we'll buy like a 1980s, you know, 200 unit apartment complex. We'll raise little capital to, you know, fix up the kitchens, new appliances, paint job, new flooring, new playground equipment to be able to bump the rents up slightly. And then this will probably take maybe four or five years to do. And then we will sell it and realize the cash flow and gains. But for each individual investor, you know, the analogy I use is kind of like an airplane. You have the, in the cockpit, you have the general partners, the guys who find the deal, they put it all together, get the lending. They also put the debt in their own personal name. So the investor doesn't really have to worry about them. And then all the passive investors, you know, they come in, maybe put 50, 100 grand into the deal and come and coach. They sit down, they relax, and they just ride the, the deal out. But that's a works on a on a micro level. Each LP, you know, you should diversify. So you may be in dozens and dozens of these types of, you know, individual projects to get diversification for you. But this is where I mean, some people call this, oh, it's a country club, right? Well, nobody really goes to play golf at the country club these days, but you know, with the internet, it's allowed people to kind of really vet operators and general partners and also find the deals themselves too. But it's all within this world of you know, mostly investors, right? People getting involved in these types of things. If people are from like crowdfunding websites, right? It's the sort of been able to democratize this type of world. But, you know, the problem with crowdfunding websites is they're essentially just a broker dealer website. You don't really know or vet the people, even though they say they do. And then they're also applying on a rung of fees and splits. So I, it's always go directly to the source and, you know, work directly with the sponsor operator, build a relationship with them. Um, but that's, that's kind of what syndications placements are. Cool. Thank you for that explanation. So that somewhat leads me into a question that I had for you. And I think your take is going to be very interesting for me. And that is, commercial real estate versus a rental property real estate. And rental property can look, you know, different, different forms of it, but just a place or a place where multiple families or a single home family can live versus commercial pros, cons, is one better than the other? I have this debate with my partner sometimes. And he always says, you know, I think that commercial is the way to go. And then since the pandemic, I kind of question what that looks like. I guess it does depend on the country as well. Um, but share your thoughts on this and what that looks like for you. Yeah. I mean, I think the obvious things that people always point to, like when you have multiple roofs, you don't have to work, you know, one unit going dark on you and then losing all your revenue. But that can be somewhat alleviated by, you know, having a dozen rental properties too. I think then it gets into like 
economies of scale and geez, like I mean, we like to get above. Like, we used to buy a lot of like older fifty units. They're just too small. What you really need, I mean, with fifty units, you can have a leasing agent property to kind of build that sense of community. But you really need like seventy units to justify that full time handyman on site. And that's where you really get a lot of these cost savings because when you're a landlord, just a property or few, you're getting killed by all these plumbing costs. And yeah, I can remember like like these guys, especially when you're out of state, the property owner buying these like turnkey rentals, they call it out there, you know, you're killed because like the plumber knows that you're just some rich dude in Hawaii who has no recourse to like check their work. And the property manager is not really aligned in your best interest, right? Most likely they're buddies because they live in town together. And you're just getting gouged by these plumbing repairs at like 700 bucks, right? Where it was like one guy came out and it's to fix something really quick. But when you're, you know, you're into this economy of scale where you're paying your handyman by salary, he may knock out a small job like that before his first smoke break of the day. And then we also get them HVAC trained and to take care of those small types of things. So you can imagine a lot of good economies of scale with, with that type of stuff. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing that I'll highlight, like the difference between residential and commercial is, you know, like when you're buying properties under or even $5 properties, so single family home, obviously, but duplex, triplex, quadplex, even like 20 units and below. And maybe even 50 units and below, you're, you're really dealing, you have a high level of competition because every mom and pa investors buying that type of stuff. And they're not very sophisticated, right? This is like grandma and grandpa who have their rental property. They don't care. And they're just buying whatever. And you're competing with that unsophisticated buyer. What we like to do is we like to kind of swim higher than that threshold and get to a rung where you don't like the average mom and pa investor out there and there's less competition there's obviously a lot less of inventory right? but there is a lot 100 200 300 unit apartment complexes out there when you start to look for them but it's just a, a run where you're out sort of competing more with the institutional guys so if you can kind of stay away from the big sharks there is and, and be a savvy investor know what you want to pay for something you can Kind of get lucky here and there, but certainly on the bottom bottom rungs, you know, five million, ten million dollar properties or less, there the competition is very very fierce. So just in terms of like pricing per unit, and then economies of scale, I think it's like commercial is better, but easier said than done, right? Like you need to be able to pull together five ten dollars together as a down payment, and that's kind of the the hard part. But I always say any business when you have a, a barrier to entry that is a good thing because once you step over that threshold then all these other suckers go away as your competition yeah exactly you don't want just anyone to be able to get involved and once you get out of that realm that's when from what you're saying you can really start making the money and the passive money as well which i love so thank you for explaining that in a very concise way. Now, I know we briefly touched on the tax aspect of things, but let's dive a little bit deeper into what you can do to optimize your taxes in the U.S. Specifically, we're talking about the U.S. market. If you are living there and you are investing within the U.S. market, are there certain states, as you previously mentioned, where it's better to get started for tax purposes? 
Um, and then what are some of the tax breaks that you can take advantage of? One thing that I saw that I loved on your website was that in 2018, you paid 4% tax. So let's dive into this a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not really a state thing. It's more of a federal thing. And it is kind of a lot simpler than what I think people think. And again, this is kind of one of those things that the wealthy understand. It just kind of flies under the radar. But like rental properties, you're able to get a lot of these losses on even though you're making a lot of money. And the losses stem from depreciating the asset over time. So like, you know, you may have, I remember like my first property in Seattle cost 350000 and you're able to deduct the prop prove it value. You can't deduct the land value, but I was able to say, take the $7,000, $8,000 a year as losses, paper losses, and that more than offset all the income I was generating. So that's why it was tax-free. And so that's kind of level one. That's the basic stuff. But, you know, when we buy these larger apartments, we're able to do what's called a cost segregation. So instead of that single family home where you're deducting 127 of the value over 27 years, which is called straight depreciation, which is really slow, right? Um, with cost segregation, you're basically able to write off the asset a lot more aggressively. So a lot of times we're able to deduct one third of the value in the first year, creating this huge, huge surplus of losses. Certainly, you know, there's going to be a lot left over even after the first several years of all the gains that you make. And this is where you're going to have all these passive losses, these suspended passive losses, as we call it. So most times it just sits on your tax record or specifically your 8582 form. If it sounds confusing, just think of it as a cloud for you to use have gains but this is where things kind of get cool right like if you're able to pool all your investments together now that passive losses you got one building can offset your entire portfolio but it gets better from there right so for most people you can pretty easily offset passive income with these passive losses that we're talking about but you know say like we have a case where like doctor making 600 grand a year and they're able to implement a strategy called real professional status right there maybe their spouse is able to check that box on their taxes for them now they're able to use these passive losses to attack their ordinary and drive their income you know we always say well try to you know, drive down to that three hundred fifty thousand dollar level because that's where the tax brackets really jump up or $200,000 because that's kind of where you pay, start to pay significant taxes. But, you know, we have clients just drop down to zero and just burning up other losses. Then, you know, some will argue that's a stretch year, but it's, that's some of the capabilities. So it's not really about like tax breaks or anything like that. It's very simply using losses to offset your income on your entire tax profile. And this is kind of like the second big, if you're able to get off investing in 401ks, Wall Street products, where there's just a lot of fees and bloat, and now you're able to like 30, 50% plus on your tax bill every year, you're seeing how this like greatly expedites you get, get to financial freedom, all legally, of course, right? This is the tax system is kind of road incentivizing people to buy real estate as and these are you got to take it, right? That is so exciting. Now, in you saying all of this specific to America, I'm curious, and you may not, which is totally fine. Just let me know. 
Um, I'm curious about if you have knowledge of international markets. I know that, of course, the tax law would look different if investing in markets, whether you already have some or in the future, that looks interesting to you. I mean, this is a podcast of travelers who are sometimes based in the U.S., sometimes based elsewhere, but not always going to be based in the U.S. or potentially giving up citizenship down the line. So what does that look like if you have any knowledge of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't claim to be an expert. I'm not a CPA, right? Like we, we refer people and sell to those professionals, right? But it's important to find the, the decent ones because most CPAs don't understand any of this type of stuff. But as far as like, so like I'm a, I'm a digital nomad kind of running around, generally say, look, stick to America, uh, like from, this is a, has the best rent to value ratios out there. Um, and we have best legal systems that we all complain about. It, you know, it's, you own something, right? We have very strong legal fund. Again, not to say anything political, right? Like our military runs around, believes the rest of the world. But the reason being is we own the, the world's monetary policy. So that's not a good reason why to own quote code hard real estate in the United States. Um, so, but even just from a rent to value standpoint, if you're around where you look, what it costs to rent divided by the purchase price, you got to be a one percent. I mean, only in America you kind of do that. Plus, in America you have really good lending. In a lot of other countries, you're lucky to get eighty percent of the value here. America, you could get like 70, 80% pretty easily at these at government subsidized interest rates. So I think it's a no brainer to buy properties in America, especially when you're getting started. You know, once your network goes past four or five dollars, you don't need to do smart things. You can just like buy whatever in Bahamas or, or wherever you want to go. But, you know, I would say go after the first first. Don't let the tax tail wake the dog, they say. But as far as like, you know, if you're not an American citizen, that might be tough. But at that point, you know, for the most part, most countries have this general idea or concept of you buy a property, depreciates on paper. It's sort of universal. And you can kind of do the same tactics that we're talking about here, right? Buy real estate, use those losses offset income gains, maybe look to have it offset other stuff. I like that you include about Americans and non-Americans because I know for myself, I would never personally, business is different, but I would never want to personally get anything commingled in the US. That's just for me and the lifestyle that I have built out for myself and what looks best for me. So looking at real estate would look like other countries. But of course, within this, you've shared so many considerations. I think whether you are in America or elsewhere, like you said, it has to be about that 1%. So a lot of good things to kind of consider when you are starting out on this journey. And it's interesting because it does look different for people who live in the U.S. full time and those of us who travel and those of us who are not American. So it's a really interesting topic to explore. Now, there's a lot that we just don't have time to touch on here. Is there anything that you want to touch on, bring to light that has not been touched on so far? Yeah, I mean, I think another thing like you mentioned, like if you're traveling all over you know, you don't, you're less inclined to deal with problems locally. I mean, sure, you probably should have a proper manager, but I think when your net worth goes over, yeah, that's when you definitely should maybe switch to syndications and private placements. So you're even that much more removed, right? Your general partners does the asset managers deal with any fires on the ground for you. And you're kind of aligned interests in that respect. 
But, you know, like we talked about investments and taxes. The third kind of trifecta part of this whole wealth and whole life insurance configured with low commissions that a way for you to kind of stuff in there and to get away from the whole banking system. I've kind of seen how fragile it is, but use that as your place where you store your liquidity, make a nice little return. Most of the policies pay you like four or five percent, but the little loophole because the little loophole is that it's life insurance. You don't get taxed. So that's a big thing. So in a way, like it may also um, simplify a lot of your time. I love that. Thank you for sharing everything you shared today. So where can people find you and your book online? Yeah, they can um, probably check it out on Amazon mm-hmm. Elevator um, or they can go to thewealthelevator.com. If you got any specific questions, we work with accredited investors, um, but we do have a lot of content for you know new people getting started. We, I used to teach that I could aid turnkey rentals, remote rentals. So a lot of that content is for free on the site. In addition, got syndication passive investor primer on the website too. You've just listened to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. If anything from this episode resonated with you, I would appreciate if you share this podcast on your socials. And of course, be sure to tag me. And don't forget to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining me on this global citizen journey, and I'll see you in the next episode.